Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, we visit with Allie Coker, author of The Last Resort, a novella told in voices, small vignettes of characters residing in a sanatorium who exist mostly in their own minds. As we shift from each small perspective, patients, caregivers, security, we begin to see The Last Resort sanatorium come into view more clearly, especially the experience of a young, enigmatic woman, Sandy, and her alter ego, Lex. Alan Michael Parker, author of Cry Uncle and Wheel Man, had this to say about the book. Allie Coker searing and searching the last resort is a polyphonic wonder, a choir of soaring and anguish voices. Everyone's locked up here, the suicidal patients together with the shift work caregivers, and we hear from them all. Whether ideational or lucky, other siders who have experienced death and returned were all at risk in this terrific little novella, as number 19145 warns us about being here. With these patients and in our own heads, it's hard to outrun the past when you're still creating it. What a stunning, harrowing debut work of fiction. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlotteroospodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Allie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you. And that's nice praise. Uh, you know, <clears throat> Allie Coker's Searing and Searching the Last Resort is a polyphonic wonder, a choir of soaring and extinguished, I said extinguished, and anguished voices, not extinguished, but uh, <laughs> anguished voices. Uh, I had to look up polyphonic, you know. Producing many sounds, many voices. Uh, where where did your brain meet this choir of voices? That's a good question. And actually, I did have uh, one other reviewer 
who a former professor of mine who, um, while she enjoyed the book, said she wasn't convinced that it's a novella, but more of a Greek chorus. So I think that that is a strong takeaway for a lot of the readers in it. Um, novella just seemed to be the best term to call it at the time. But um, so, yeah, I get a lot of questions about the structure of it. And it wasn't, it was and was not intentional. So to me, there are stories that demand to be told a certain way. Um, I have a friend who wrote his novel and it's, it's much longer than mine. And he shifted perspectives between um, narrators as well as time frames by about 50 years apart uh, several times. And I asked him, you know, what made you do that? It works, but what made you do that? And he said, that's just how it came out. And the more that I thought about this book and my process of writing it over the last, you know, three to four years between uh, starting and publication, that's a little bit how this one came out is it came out in bits and pieces and the different voices. So it was, it was more a question of how will this be published in a way that the reader will be able to follow along and still en enjoy it and appreciate it without getting too lost um, but that's, it's kind of what came naturally while, while telling the story. Mm, that's interesting. And this line that, uh, was mentioned also in the opening lead that I did, it's hard to outrun the past when you're still creating it. Maybe as if to say that the past is something they're trying to run from, but they can't quite escape that part of their life. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with a variety of people and some of whom point out that, the older you get, the harder it is to recreate your life because you're literally running out of time. Um, and while I think that's very, very true, uh, it kind of played into that notion of it's hard to create a new life um, and see a better, different future for yourself sometimes if you're still either living in the past emotionally and, of course, not by choice. I think that um, that's something that just kind of gets its hooks into you. Um, and sticks with you, or um, if you're actually living out the past by each present day looking exactly like it was the prior five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it may be. Um, so that's kind of how that line came to fruition. Hmm. Well, that's why, that's why when you're going crazy with electronic discovery after 35 years of practicing law, you, you, walk, you walk out of a law practice and, and, and into a sanatorium called a podcast studio, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I encourage people to recreate to think to think about that Act Three. Uh, well, let's, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious about this. Um, you said in your acknowledgments in the back of the book, The Last Resort. You said, unlike the rest of my work, most of this was written outdoors. So if it is found to be lacking, I blame it on the fresh air. Uh, yes. <laughs> why, why was this written outdoors, and where was it written? Yeah, so um, that was that was a fun piece I wanted to throw in. I am notoriously, um, as an adult at least, and uh, what I like to call an inside cat. And so I spent a lot of time indoors until the pandemic hit. And then it only took a worldwide pandemic and just the right friend to get me into hiking. And so I spent a great portion of 2020 outdoors hiking, um, outdoors writing, reading, just really being out there whenever I could be. Um, and so for this book in particular, I took some time to go to the nearby community farm, as well as um, this little 
collection of tiny homes that uh, we have anchored over here in Chapel Hill. And I spent some time sitting out at the, the local tea house, just working and working and reworking on uh, this novella. And so I, I have to think that there's got to be some difference to it than uh, all the other things I've written indoors. But um, it was just kind of a nice way to to nod at the people that would see me and help me and serve me and kind of became you know friends over that period of time. So you just took your notebook and uh, went out and just uh, wrote freehand in the outside? Mm -hmm. Yep. So I actually write everything um, by hand. Uh, and part of that is, as we were discussing before, is that I grew up um, just doing everything by hand and not having a computer until I got to college. And then I didn't actually have a cell phone until after college. And I think that it actually was to my benefit because it really helps in um, communicating, but it also helped me. It helps me. Something happens, and I've heard it said before, you know, the way your brain connects to your hand when you're writing on a page is different than when you're typing. Um, and now I've gotten a little better at both, but but I definitely still carry like a tiny notebook with me wherever I go just so that if something comes to mind, I, I won't forget it. Yeah, some of my writer's friends tell me I should do that, but I can't read my own handwriting, so I have to stop there and go, <laughs> go, go, yeah. go to the computer. But uh, so, uh, is there a takeaway here that um, you know that you wrote this outdoors, but it caused you to reflect so intensely on being locked up? I mean, mm. I'm just curious about that. That's that's a good question. I I think there is. I think there's a certain freedom to and privilege, right, to getting to be not only outside, like physically outside, but outside in an area with like fresh air and greenery and animals and, um, you know, kind of an idyllic landscape. That is definitely a privilege that not everyone has, whether they are uh, locked up for their, their own mental health uh, or otherwise, or whether they just happen to live somewhere else in this country. Um, so that's a good point. I think I think the interplay between freedom and um, enjoying those luxuries and how you are so, so restricted um, from what my research and conversations with others showed when you're in uh, a mental health institution, I think that those do definitely connect. Um, I know that there, I've spoken with people who during their very short stays um, inside these facilities have come out of it and gone somewhere and tried to open a door. And, you know, if there are double doors, one of them will be locked sometimes and one's open and they've run into the locked one and they felt this, just this anger and this, all these emotions kind of well up inside of them because it takes them back to that place immediately. And it feels like a barrier to the outside world. Um, so, yeah, so I think that you're right. I think there must be some kind of connection between the two. Hmm. So before we dive deeper into this, uh, to this book here that you've written. Your previous book uh, was What I Learned at Davidson. I'm a Davidson graduate long, <laughs> a lot longer time ago than you, but uh, let's just talk real quickly about what you learned at Davidson that helped you perhaps with this particular project. Sure, absolutely. I don't know about you, but it's funny you said longer ago than, than I graduated. It always feels like yesterday and it always feels like 100 years ago. So it's an interesting, um, interesting thing, but... Um, yeah, so with that book, I was primarily, I did ask people about the academics and all those good things that go along with, you know, how we define college, but I was trying to get at what did they learn other than just the, the schooling piece and the grades piece. And um, I think that while that project was entirely different than this project, 
it got me thinking about what lies beneath the surface of all this medical terminology and all, all the, you know, everything in America is a business and health in general. And of course, mental health has also become a business. Um, and so it got me to look deeper than that, though, at, at more the personal side of it. So for instance, uh, the DSM is a diagnostic manual that psychologists and psychiatrists use. And I own one of them. You can get them at Barnes & Noble. They keep them behind the counter. I think they're afraid that people will steal them, which would be impossible because it's about this thick. <laughs> but um, but I guess they're very expensive, right? So um, so I, I had gotten one and I was reading through it about all the different diagnoses. And as I went through, I was having these images come to mind of people I actually know that struggle with this or um, have shared their stories about it. And so what I went and did was I bookmarked the pages with pictures of my friends instead of just having this like black and white uh, description in front of me. Uh, I think that I wanted to put a face on um, those experiences and mental health because it's not monolithic and everybody has different situations and, and different stories. So that very much reminded me of the process of writing what I learned at Davidson um, was just trying to get behind the scenes. Yeah. And a little bit more, you, uh, after graduating Davidson, you got a, a master's in fine arts from Queens. You've been an editor. You've, uh, you've had a, a residency, uh, with wild acres and, uh, and still you're what we're going to talk about on Patreon, an unscheduled writer. Yes, <laughs> very much. So I know it, it's a miracle. I get anything accomplished really. Um, but that, that is true. I think that, I've been very lucky and the further out I get actually from my master's, the more and more I seem to pick up uh, very organized and scheduled things to keep me on track, such as a uh, Redbud writing project here on the Triangle. I've been doing a lot of their classes. Um, I've joined the North Carolina Writers Network, which has been a wonderful experience and um, have just cultivated more groups of people to kind of bounce those ideas off of. So they help keep me not scheduled, but at least like accountable. So we will talk about that for sure. Yeah, we did a Patreon episode with Redbud Writing, and uh, we've had a, a blog post on our community blog from them. This great work. And then, of course, North Carolina Writers Network, too. And and listeners, we're going to, uh, after this is over, jump over to Patreon, this P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. And we're going to talk about this thing called the unscheduled writer and how if you're overwhelmed, you can still get writing out into the world. So, uh, but before we do that, um, you know, Allie, this book uh, dives deep into this topic of uh, mental illness. And I'm wondering, is there something, um, you know, in your own past or something that you thought, you know, that you struggle with that you needed to kind of work through with this book to help with or, or not? Or is this something you're just looking at from the perspective of friends, like you said, that you had seen who were suffering some of these issues? So what I learned at Davidson came out in 2012. And in between that time and 2017, I picked up a lot of projects and a lot of ideas and did a lot of research and would get excited about things and they didn't stick. And um, so I do, well, I'm not going to use the term suffer. I do uh, have depression and anxiety. And that is something that I try to be fairly open about um, more so as time goes on and you become more and more comfortable in your own skin. And, and I've noticed that sometimes that is the piece that will connect you to other people. I think people are afraid to let others know uh, what they perceive to be their weaknesses um, or, or demons that they struggle with. 
um, when really that could be could be the connecting bridge between you know two people. And so around 2017, I on this idea and I thought more about it and through those conversations um, with friends who also have, um, whether formally diagnosed or not, just mental health struggles, um, kind of started forming and playing around with this idea for the book. And then I have been lucky enough to know people too who have worked as um, you know, inpatient facility, mental health workers, therapists, there are a lot of people involved. It's much more than just doctor patient these days. Um, and again, of course, you see that in the book, even down to, you know, law enforcement and what role they play sometimes in these critical um, situations. But it's definitely something that comes from uh, my own background and thinking about how to bring that conversation more into the light. Um, I think we've come a long way as a society, but I think that we still tend to like make a hierarchy for it as well. Like mm-hmm. depression is the number one in the country, but how much do we know, understand, or empathize with people that might have schizophrenia or might have, um, you know, OCD and that whole spectrum of disorders. So yeah, it's kind of a jumping off point, I think. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that we talk about these issues and they become more public. I mean, the, the legal profession, uh, people may not realize this, but lawyers uh, suffer, you know, a higher degree than many professions with the topic of depression. I went through a little bit when I was practicing law and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that uh, it's kind of hard to describe to other people unless you go through it yourself, as I understand. But uh, it's nice that you've actually used, you know, this to, to, did, did it help you, Allie, to write about it? It did. I think it was a very, I always told people, first I told people, don't get excited. It's not a fun book. It's not right. a fun read. Um, and it wasn't fun writing it, but it was um, cathartic, but it was also came very naturally, I think, because it is something that whether people are open about it, talking about it or not, everyone is dealing with. So, and actually I had forgotten to mention, you are right. There was one other incident that kind of planted itself in my mind back in 2013, which was that I was writing poetry at the time and I had written a poem um, that involved a list of uh, more famous artists, whether that be writer, musicians, et cetera, who had committed suicide. And for the poem to balance, I needed one more name. And you had mentioned that, yes, I have been an editor um, and founder of an online literary magazine at some point. And that was a lot of fun because um, we would, you know, write off to these really big authors and whoever wrote us back, we would get to quote them and have conversations. And this one gentleman had done so. And we kind of developed a little bit of a rapport through the literary magazine. And, you know, I'd hear from him occasionally. So in writing that poem, I went to Google, you know, trying to look for like one more name and his name came up. And I was not aware that he had just committed suicide and it was absolutely heartbreaking um, for his, for his family and his friends. But it was also just a shock to the system because this is someone that I did not know well, but that I had been you know, in touch with off and on for months. And so I think that he definitely came to mind that incident and how um, you can extrapolate that to a lot of people in America came to mind when going to write this book years later. So mm. Yeah, so now might be a good time. Uh, we do this on the show. We have a reading where the authors give voice to their written words. And the, the title of this book, uh, listeners, is The Last Resort. It's a novella in voices. The title refers to uh, a setting, a sanitarium for residents who are trapped in their own minds. And you hear from all these different voices. Um, you're reading somewhere 
around the middle of the book. Al, you want to set this reading up just a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So this is actually a little closer to the end, I think. Um, and it's basically a section that outlines our idea of what normal is in society, both through behaviors, but also how we perceive others that we come in contact with. Um, so it, it definitely talks about a particular woman who has this very um, idyllic looking life, um, but how things really happened for her. So Everyone's got a pithy remedy when you're sick in the head. The difference between recommending chicken soup for a cold and endlessly licking your wounds is people saying, if you'd only exercise, focus on the positive, keep a gratitude journal, go to church, eat better, sleep more, drink more water, work less, work harder, do community service, get involved, join a club, make a change, move, quit your job, break up, get an online profile, visit your family more, cut negative people out, cut carbs out, cut sugar out, make a vision board, take a class. As though we could will ourselves back into health, into happiness, as though if we just strive hard enough, then our whole life will come together and nothing bad can touch us. We'll feel okay about anything and instantly know how to cope. We'll see the grand design of it all, the painful utility behind the plan. Why everything happens for a reason. Crying is unnatural. Screaming is unnatural. Meds are unnatural. Sleeping 12 plus hours a day, out of the question. The problem is, while we're running around tending each part of our lives, something is slipping further and further out of view, and a different piece breaks. So we rush to fix that, and in doing so, neglect ourselves and our emotions once again. It's an endless setup for failure. Clara, a neighbor who lived at the end of our cul-de-sac, did all these things. Her life was run like a Rockwellian vision of Americana, all the way down to the white picket fence. She had a career she loved and was both a PTA mom and church leader. Clara went to the gym three times a week and routinely got mistaken for being a decade younger than she was. Even her blood pressure, height, and shoe size were average. She balanced her work responsibly and day after day, she toiled for five years before receiving a promotion. She came home one day to her family, unlocking the door in the garage, then remembered she left her lunchbox out in the car. She returned to the car, unlocked it, sat inside, started the engine, shut the garage door, and proceeded to fume herself out of this world. Her obituary read, in part, that Claire Honore was a steady, dependable person. I could have been more faithful, more strung out on belief. I could have made smarter decisions. I could have been more disciplined, been more practical. I could have stayed, could have left, could have given up, or could have stuck with it. This is the prayer of the lost. Wow. Yeah, so you've sort of, uh, you know, juxtaposed all the bad advice against what someone's dealing with in reality. Yes, definitely. I think that um, people want to help, but the only way we know how to help sometimes is by recycling these really, like, pithy uh, sayings and, and things that, you know, and I've heard people, they get frustrated. Like if one more person tells me to go outside, I'm going to scream because, <laughs> because sometimes there are issues that can't be solved that easily. Um, but I do know, you know, from personal experience myself and around others that this is what we go to, even if it's a physical illness, um, is that people want to help. So they have a lot of advice to give. So. 
that's the hardest thing for type A personalities like, you know, some lawyers like I was. You know, you want to fix something. You want to come in and analyze it and make a suggestion and take care of it, particularly yes. if it's your children. And now I'm starting to learn, no, I, sh I should instead ask a question, you know, not mm -hmm. come in, mm -hmm. not come in with, you know, the advice. So it's only taken me 63 years and I'm, I'm still learning. So. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's good. I think it's good to learn it at any point. Um, and yeah. I, and I think you're right. It's not a natural, if somebody is in need or hurting, um, we don't naturally think of, well, let me have them supply the suggestion of what I should do. Right. Um, but, but you have to give them that opportunity. I, I was going to tell you one of my favorite pieces of advice, uh, my mom and I still laugh about it to this day. So, um, so I had leukemia twice when I was there as a kid and we stayed in the Ronald McDonald house for a good portion of the first time I was sick because it's like two and a half years of treatment each time. And what, what really comes down to it with the advice is you have to hear it because people will come to you with it, whether you want to or not, but you also have to know what's good advice and what's bad advice. And I think that's where the skill lies. So this guy had come into the kitchen. I wasn't there and my mom was there and they were talking about, you know, what their kids were going through. And he recommended that to get rid of the leukemia, um, that she mixed turpentine and molasses together and that would do it. So, so she didn't really know what to say about that, but I've gotten a lot of writing mileage out of that little anecdote. Um, yeah. Yeah. It might've killed you. That's all, you know, but, uh, yeah. interesting. Well, also, um, Allie, you do a little, uh, satirical thing here in the book. I was laughing when I read this part, it's earlier in the book, uh, Lex, who's, you know, that's the alter ego of Sandy, you know, Lex Luthor, but, uh, Lex says, I keep a mental list of those who have been considered crazy over time. Those who thought the earth was round, those who thought the earth was flat, those who believed in gods, those who did not believe in gods. And what's this word? Sim similes? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. And it says the last is the tragically true story of the doctor by the same name who advised professionals in the medical field to wash their hands in order to decrease the mortality rate among patients. Due to this fervent belief, he ended up dying in an insane asylum. So that's how much we know. That's how much we know about crazy, right? Yes, it's so true. I think um, like art, it's all contextual too, depending on what time you live in. So um, when I heard that story about Samuel Weiss, it was very disturbing. And especially it was actually a sting. So they had uh, his, over time, his co-workers had like conspired against him and invited him to some kind of ceremony or conference. And that was actually how they got him into the insane asylum and he never left. But it, yeah, to me, there's a lot of, I'm glad that you described it as humorous because to me, when I was writing it, there was a lot of dark humor I wanted to infuse. Um, but it, it's actually probably less humor than I use in my normal day-to-day -day writing because I didn't want that to be the focus. I didn't want to make light of the topic, but when you observe real life and you look at the irony of the situations you find yourself in or your characters find themselves in, there is humor there, just natural humor um, of things that don't quite make sense. So, Well, you know, I would say that it's hard to believe that someone would, you know, be criticized for recommending that other people wash their hands, but having watched people criticize other people <laughs> for wearing masks, I don't yeah. think that's uh, times have changed too much in some respects. So, uh, okay, a little bit about uh, all the different ways that people find themselves into the 
to last resort. You cover everything from, uh, you know, addiction to depression to dealing with uh, marital issues to dealing with, uh, you know, suicide and all these different things together. As you said, it's not a happy read, but it's kind of a thought provoking read. What are you hoping people, you know, come out of this book, uh, you know, with after having seen all the different ways that uh, people struggle? I think the main thing that I would hope people come away with is um, a growing sense of empathy and a desire to understand more the unknown. So I think it is very easy um, as a collective, right, as a collective group to look at those issues you just named, whether it be addiction or depression or whatever it is, as a weakness and as something uh you know, I wanted to define what, what does weakness really mean and for people to realize that these, these designations are not weaknesses because we're not actually in control of our mind as much as we think we are. And I know people believe that to varying degrees, but um, no one ever looks at an Alzheimer's patient or a patient with dementia and blames them or um, feels that they just need to get better control of their mind. And so I think that if you take a step back and really consider um, that all pain should feel should feel equal and that it doesn't really help to assign like blame or at-fault causes, um, I, then people can realize, you know, this could happen to me. And uh, I, had, I had a good friend who was a mental health worker and he was very open about that with his patients. He always said, I could be in here. I could be in here this week and I wouldn't even know. Yeah, so I think that um, the understanding that having mental health struggles is not a weakness and um, having some growing empathy for that population of people by understanding that you could be part of that population of people. There's really no invisible dividing line between like us and them. Um, it's all just something that could come into play in your life, whether now or later. Yeah, I think the empathy is the big thing, but also... Um maybe having some empathy for yourself, because I think there's this societal belief that's, that's imposed upon us as we grow up, you know, just be tough. You know, you can get through this. Uh, you don't need to talk to anybody about it. You don't need to, you know, be on any kind of medication. You don't need to do anything because, you know, you just work yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. No, it's very true. I think, uh, I think we definitely live in a country and a culture that's bootstrap mentality, just like that. So even down to just the terms we use, you know, I had a discussion about how, we call them antidepressants, but they should just be called painkillers because they're the same <laughs> as an ibuprofen. So, yeah. There you go. That's that's a different way to look at it. I'm going to take my painkiller today. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so let's just a couple of quick writing life questions before we jump over to uh, to Patreon and talk about the unscheduled writer. Um, you've um, you've been you've been writing for a while, and I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, you know, you talk about this idea of being unscheduled at times. How do you balance your real world life? Uh, with your writing life? I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good at that, um, which is why I've had to to kind of seek a bigger community in order to do that. So my real life, quote unquote, um, is I have a very demanding eight to five, 40 hours a week job that is extremely high paced and um, on steroids is what it feels like. And it has absolutely nothing to do with writing, reading, literature. I mean, it is completely on the other side of the brain. Um, and so 
I really struggled for years with coming home and being able to do anything related to my writing work and projects. And so um, I've kind of had to force myself to carve out time here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but also just, like I said, I think finding accountability partners and joining organizations of people that are like me really helped a lot because for a while there, it always seems impossible. You're like, I can't, I can't make a living doing something else and write. So. Do you often surprise yourself? Um, and in particular with this book, did, did you surprise yourself sometimes with where the writing took you? I did. I think I did. Um, usually you have an idea where the story is going and I definitely knew how it should end, but I wasn't sure, I wasn't aware that all the voices that came in would be such central figures as they were. So there might've been these, these minor characters who had things to say um, that I had not planned or imagined at all um, that kind of came onto the page and interacted with, with um, the rest of the characters in an interesting way. So it was a lot more circular too. Like I thought it would be writing this book would be, you know, point A to point Z. And as I wrote, it kept going in spirals kind of over and over again, which I think works well for, for this whole complexity of madness piece. But, um, but I definitely kept seeing these, these recurring themes come up that I had not intentionally planned to put in. So what's been the reaction when people have read this book uh, who know you, um, what kind of questions do you get uh, about the book? I get a lot of questions about the structure. So it, I, it's fun because what's neat is I've learned how people read because some people will, will come up to me and they'll say, okay, so I made a list last night in Excel and I wrote down all the numbers of all the characters and can you clarify who's who and they're very detailed about it. Um, so that's fun to hear. And then I have other people that know that they're various characters, but they're not really that concerned. They get that it's um, just all supposed to be one pieces of one larger voice. Um, but I get a lot, of, a lot of questions about the structure. So it's been fun to see how people are interpreting that. I've had a few questions about so when I first when I first started to write this book, I wanted to also draw light similarities between being in an uh, insane asylum and being in prison. And when I first started to write it, I wanted to hold that suspense for a while, but it was just impossible to do. Like at some point early in the book, I had to anchor where they were. Um, and so so I did that, but I get questions about Sandy and Lex a lot because um, I was striving to make it known that she didn't have split personalities, but um, sometimes that comes through and sometimes it doesn't. And honestly, no matter how you end up reading this book, I think you're going to get hopefully some kind of significant takeaway from it. But um, so I get a lot of questions about that. And I've had a few people, not questions, but I've had a few people tell me, you know, that they really to the book, but that it was hard and they had to read it in like two, three, four, five sittings, even though it's very short, just because it's emotionally resonant with them and kind of heavy. So, yeah, it does get you thinking. And just in terms of the structure, you've almost, uh, it's almost like you were looking at a, uh, a record here with a, a little name or initials to the size. Sometimes they're a number, sometimes they're just initials of the, of the person's name and you've got all these different voices coming in. But if you read it with the idea that, uh, you know, you're just, you're just seeing it from the perspective of different people who are either caring for those in the last resort who are experiencing being chained up might be one way to think about it within the last resort. 
uh, then you can get a sense for how, how you know both sides approach it. All right, well, Allie, we're 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 out of time. Uh, I tell you, we could talk uh, more. Uh, listeners, uh, go check out the Last Resort uh, Novella and Voices, and uh, jump over and listen to us on Patreon. We're gonna we're gonna talk about how an unscheduled writer writes, and uh, how you might, uh, you know, if you're if you face some of that, uh, do some of the same things. So uh, check us out at Patreon, p a t r e l n dot com forward slash Charlotte Rears Podcast. Allie, thank you so much for being a part of Charlotte Rears Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.